Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Karen Pickering. Hello, Clementine Ford. How are you on this fine summer's day? I'm pretty excited to be getting into a roundup of 2021 with you. Special event. Yeah, well, just, you know, we figured that we talk so well together on our own. Why not just record it and wrap up the year? It's a a crossover episode between Big Sister Hotline and Shoshal FM. And you'll be able to catch it on both channels for a limited time. Well, in perpetuity. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just, you know, this is kind of an unusual format because we're not going based on either format of those podcasts. We're just going to have a conversation. So I hope you enjoy coming along with us. Basically we... what we've done, basically what we've done for anyone who's wondering about the particular format of this is we just sat in my kitchen table, started the microphones, talked for a bit and then um, naturally picked up a conversation at its entry point, and that is what we will be taking you to now. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about joy, and I'm, I don't know whether or not this is something that young women in their 20s feel now, or young people in their 20s feel, but I feel when we were young, there was so much fucking, um, like, self-conscious uh, irony posturing posturing and ironic kind mm. of you couldn't like anything that was popular unless you were doing it ironically even if you secretly liked it you sort of had to pretend that you didn't like it mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's changed now or if that's just a function of getting older but something that um something I've been thinking about recently is uh like middle age mm-hmm. and I recently described myself as being middle-aged or as entering my middle age and a few women got like not I wouldn't say angry or upset Mm. but they got kind of they don't like it yeah they didn't like it they were like what we're middle-aged now Mm. and I thought that was such an interesting reflection on how we we conceive of age in women because I feel fine about being middle-aged and and also I'm we are one full adult human away from being one full adult human you know when we turned 20 we were a full adult human Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. not in practice and, and in thought but like we had all of the all of the kind of legal, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you know, within sort of broadly speaking, we had all of the legal mm. rights of an adult human, and now like one full adult human has passed since then. So we are clearly out of the demographic of being young, and I feel like well, that puts me in middle age, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm fucking excited and proud that I'm middle aged. I'm like, I feel like if I'm in my forties, and if I'm in the middle of my life, that means I'm going to live until my 80s or 90s. That's a fucking good innings. Like, yeah. I feel like that 
would make me so happy if that's what I get. If I have another 44 years, you know, that will be incredible. But also that, as you say, it, they were reacting against what they perceive middle age to mean. Mm. And because our culture says, especially about women, when they're middle-aged, they're shit and they're boring and they're unattractive and unfuckable. they're annoying and they're, yeah, unfuckable and they're invisible and they should just, you know, just push off. And there's a kind of resistance among women to identify as that. But I feel like, you know, you said before, like, full adult humans um, going on that 20-year cycle. And building on that, I feel like from – Birth to 20, I was a child. Mm. And then from 20 to 40, I had my first adulthood. And then now I feel like I'm in my second adulthood. Yeah. And it happened to coincide with becoming a mother. And so that's a pretty big fulcrum on which to turn. But my first adulthood was like, yeah, stumbling, learning how to be an adult, resisting adulthood, trying to speed it up at certain points, like – essentially just, you know, making a series of colossal mistakes um, mm. in in service of just growth. And now I feel like I get to have my second adulthood where I'm like, know who I am, stable, self-loving, self-valuing, know what's important, like have my fucking priorities in order. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited for a do-over. Mm. It's really interesting how, you know, and I feel like in my particular experience as someone who is somewhat in the public eye in a way certainly that a lot of men don't like, um, I went from being, and I'm still maybe hovering on, oh, fuck. Okay. It's interesting because with me I'm sort of, I sit somewhere in the middle of men when they try to insult me saying that my opinion is irrelevant because I'm young, which mm, I'm not. Mm. I'm, a, I'm 40 years old and You're objectively not young. by them, yeah. Or younger men mm. saying, well, she's just – and then they insert an age much older than what I – just ignore her. She's just an old, sad 45-year-old. <laughs> like, well, first up, 45-year-olds aren't old and sad. But for a second point, like – what I mean, that's just that's why we're so resistant to it as women, as a kind of group of people, because there is such a finite amount of time in which we are considered to be okay in the world, and that's when you're young enough for men to want to fuck you. But the irony is that when you're in that moment, not only do you not feel that you don't feel as though you're being taken seriously, you don't feel as though your ideas are being weighed on their merit, um, but it it's it's different for everyone. It's an illusion. It's like, it's almost like once you're past it, they say, well, you're you're past it. And before you get there, they're like, well, you need to get there. But Mm. it's almost like there is nowhere you can be as a woman and be, you know, taken seriously or at least taken at face value in the same way that men are. Well, you can only be taken seriously by men if you're propping up male visions and men, men's ideas <laughs> you know the women who this is why but you can't be too been, attractive you can't be too well no the yeah. best the best kind of you can be sort of like, like I, pleasing bl- pleasing yeah I mean my observations over the years have been that one of the ways in which men who are actually deeply misogynistic mm. dismiss 
the idea that they're deeply misogynistic is by saying, well, no, I like this, these women, I like, insert, you know, I like Anne Coulter, what, the <laughs> devil. Um, although even Anne Coulter's probably a little bit out of their age bracket now, but, you know, like young women like um, Lauren Southern or, you know, white supremacist young women who prop up racism and, and patriarchy and glean their own small little corner of power out of that in a way that is pleasing to those men because not only do they care deeply about their presentation and how attractive those men find them because that's a cornerstone of the kind of like the Republican right-wing value of women, but also they're letting them know, hey, guys, I'm not a threat to you. I love you. I I hate those women Mm. who are being so mean to you all the time. So on both sides, the token woman works really well because it works well for the woman to be like, well, I'm the only woman here. Yeah. And it works well for the men because they can say, look, I like a woman. Yeah, we've got a woman here. <laughs> we've got one woman here. Yeah. Guys. Um, and I feel like with middle shout age. Shout out to Julie Bishop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Julie Bishop. Not that we expected anything more from you. I feel like the whole middle-aged question then is, as you and I have talked about before, becoming really aware of it now in a way that's beyond being just theoretical mm. because when we were younger we, we sort of like heard that you know women as they got old we absorbed that message that women as they aged became irrelevant and sad and sort of dried up and passed it and <laughs> not like hit with it I mean it's kind of like reflected almost in the way that they wrote the Sex and the City reboot you know those first two episodes and then it we, we're obviously we've only had the first two episodes come out so we don't know if it's going to improve or not. But those women are meant to be mid-50s and the way that they've been written is as if almost they've just kind of like, I mean, I guess it's sort of a stylistic choice on behalf of Michael Patrick King, but to a, a nod to the fact that we're coming in 15 years with no story mm. from these women. But it's almost as if we're being asked to believe that in that 15-year period they were just plucked out of New York <laughs> and held in some kind of like stasis bubble in in space where they slowly aged and then they were dropped back down into the city and Miranda's like what's a podcast <laughs> like they were in, they were chilled in aspic for that time <laughs> well on the question but of middle age but they mid 50s like they wouldn't be that out of it yeah and also you know the the characters especially Miranda um the idea that she would be so out of touch she would be she'll be in touch enough to leave corporate law in order to go and help presumably the black lives matter movement but so out of touch that she found a podcast kind of technologically threatening yeah <laughs> i mean it's all a nonsense yeah hopefully the the show improves over the next few episodes well i've told you my theory about miranda which i'm going to repeat now for anyone <laughs> listening to this um and you don't necessarily agree and that's fine Disagreement I is think it's interesting. Disagreement is one of the great rewarding riches <laughs> of such good friendship sometimes. <laughs> um, my theory about Miranda is that she's always been, you know, of the four, anyone who kind of watched it the first time round, so women our age, mm-hmm. really, our generation, who watched it the first time round, there would always be that question. Because, of course, like, it really reflected at the time as well that there were four archetypes of women mm-hmm. that were allowed mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and it was it was transgressive in that they were finally being put on screen together, but they still had to fulfil that role. So Miranda at the time was the one no one wanted to be. If you asked a group of women, which one are you, they would rather call themselves Charlotte 
than call themselves Miranda because there was this sort of sense, at least from my perspective, that Miranda was very ambitious when it came to her career and it was kind of not cool in the early 2000s to be that ambitious in a in a traditionally male field like corporate law. Um, she also was sort of the most sexless of all of them, not that in that she had no sex, but she was kind of, you know, even her body shape was like less kind of va-va-voom than the other women. Well, she was dressed kind of boringly as well and which reflected this idea that Miranda's character didn't have as much time for those frivolous things like yeah. fashion and looking sexy and looking, you know, which – see, when – the show was first aired, I definitely was like, and I don't say this to try and like credential myself, but I definitely was like, I'm a Miranda. Like, well, I feel like you were an extremely rare example then. I feel like lots, I feel like, you know, among my friends, we watched it kind of for her in the beginning. And then Samantha kind of took over as the favorite because she was in, in the same vein as what you're saying. She became, so different from the others, whereas Miranda became more like Carrie and Charlotte over the years. You know, they kind of glammed her up. and Yeah, I just feel like she was always meant to be the trope of the kind of – of everyone you would think that she'd be the one that would yell at a man in an elevator. Oh, what a man-hater. You know, she reminds me of um, Harker Vagrant uh, – fuck, who's the – Let me just – Harley Beaton? Yeah, what's – Kate Beaton. Kate Beaton. <laughs> She reminds me of Kate Beaton's Hark a Vagrant comic strip where she does the comic strip about the 80s woman, the 80s woman going <laughs> yeah, on a date. The and she just shoulder pads. Big shoulder pads, <laughs> like perpetually looks pissed off and is just like scheduling dates while on her exercise bike and she's like, meet me at the restaurant at 8 o'clock. Fine. Or else. And then she's like having angry sex with a man and she's, you know, writing notes on her in her file of facts while she's doing it. I'm finished now. Get out. <laughs> And I know that Miranda wasn't quite like that, but I felt like that was the undertone of the trope, that Miranda was this sort of uptight, in a different way to Charlotte. Charlotte was uptight because she was a good prissy girl who was trying to remain, you know, she was trying to attract a husband, Miranda whereas Miranda was, was like... like the stereotypical humorless feminist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And in, in the early 2000s, no one wanted to be the stereotypical humorless feminist. Whereas now I feel like they've come back. And so there was that bridge where they made the movies where Miranda was also kind of positioned or made out to be um, really irritating because she was pissed off that Steve, her husband and father of her child, had cheated on her. And then, of course... She needs to just lighten up. <laughs> then, of course, it was revealed that it must be because she hadn't waxed her bush and she just had huge pubes hanging out everywhere in the, in the most unlikely and unrealistic fucking Merkin in film history. And everyone... Like, all of the women looking at her like, well, look at your, look at your vag. You let yourself go. I'm not surprised that Steve looked somewhere else. Look at that. And I remember watching it and just feeling so furious on her behalf because by that stage I had been like... I'm a fucking Miranda, mm. um, being so angry on her behalf because they're all indulging, you know, Carrie, oh, big, left you at the altar even though that was clearly, obviously <laughs> the thing he was always going to do. And yet Miranda, who has an established fucking marriage with someone and a child, oh, you're being very inconvenient right now, Miranda. It's because you've got huge pubes. I love how your hatred of Carrie runs so deep. You can't even feel sorry for her when she's literally left at the altar in front of all of New York. I cannot <laughs> feel sorry 
for Carrie Bradshaw. She is one of the worst humans yeah. ever depicted on screen. She's well, a total garbage human. You know that my theory is that Sex and the City has different phases and that the first, say, three to four seasons, that season four is kind of a, a turning point and that for the first three seasons it was actually kind of an edgy, politically driven yeah show that was about these women who didn't have to be likable they could actually be they could actually show some real ugly sides to their character but it was meant to be funny and dark and realistic and relatable to women and and a big fuck you to commercial tv and network tv that wouldn't allow women to talk about sucking dicks and mm. licking assholes and whatever else on nbc and cbs or whatever and then it's incredible popularity and the changing times, I guess, meant that the last few seasons of Sex and the City, there's nothing subversive about them at all. No, you it's know. just completely conformist. It's all kind of like fan service, like Carrie gets together with Big and Miranda But she also gets, gets, gets incredibly Steve. rich. Exactly. So it's really aspirational. Mm. Charlotte finds her dream man and, you know, seemingly really easily converts to Judaism. Like it basically becomes a fantasy or a fantasia of like upper middle class white feminism. Mm. And But it didn't begin that way, I don't think. And so I think that's what's really interesting to me. Some of my evidence, here's a, one of my, my bits of evidence is that that thing in the movie where Samantha is the most horrified at Miranda's bush doesn't really, to me, doesn't feel true to Samantha's character either. Mm. That Samantha's kind of, yeah, she's, she runs a tight ship herself. But there was like a storyline earlier on, maybe in season three or four. Can you speak into the microphone, please? Where she, um, she decides to grow her bush out because Smith prefers it. Mm. Even adding even more weight to the idea that Smith is the best man on Sex and the City in the Sex and the City universe, but that she did it because he liked it. And then in the end, it really bothered her so much because it had grey hair in it. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. That she ended up um, telling him that her preference was to have it all waxed so that she could keep the secret of the fact that she had grey pubes. Mm-mm. So, like, there's this bizarre melange there of, of, like, problems. middle-aged anxiety. Yeah. But that was always – I felt like it didn't ring true. So much of how the characters played out in the movies and then now in this new series feel so far divorced from the original characters that began that show, which I guess, you know, 30 years has passed and that's well, – that makes also, sense. Yeah, but. I mean – not quite 30 years. 20 oh, sorry, years. 20 years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the movie, this, was it the first or the second movie where Samantha moves to L.A.? I think it's the first one. She moves to L.A. and she gets – and I, I hasten to say to anyone listening that I am putting giant fucking air quotes <laughs> around this. She gets really fat. Oh, yes, yeah. Because she puts on maybe like five kilos. Mm -hmm. And they're all – like she walks in and she's just wearing her normal clothes but she's got a tiny little bit of, you know – Skin. skin and flesh <laughs> peeking out over the top of her pants and the way that they look at her then is the way that she looks at mm-hmm. Miranda's bush like <gasps> Samantha what have you done to yourself and you kind of feel like it's sort of really highlighting exactly what you're saying that it was really for the time mm-hmm. 
subversive in the beginning and then they just became like completely conformist to um, aspirational ideals of body, beauty, wealth. And then as everyone remembers, the sec- everyone who sort of watches the movies, even if you hate watch them like me, um, the second movie really fell flat because it oh, came right after the so fucking... So racist. So racist. <laughs> So racist, so unbelievably racist, white privileged, but also came right after the global financial crisis Mm. where everyone was like, I cannot watch. I don't have a job. I cannot watch (laughs) these four rich fucking women sauntering around what is meant to be Abu Dhabi with like literal people of colour servicing them and holding umbrellas over there. Like it was just a colonialist nightmare. Um. So in a way, I'm kind of like curious how they, why they haven't addressed that in the in the kind of conceit of the universe of the films. But That's, I want to get back in a second to my theory about Miranda. Yeah, well, I just think that that is exactly what they're putting on to Miranda. So to get back to Miranda, I think that's I think they're putting the full weight of every mistake the show and franchise has ever made now on the back of the character of Miranda. So but do you know why they're doing that? <laughs> because they hate her. Because they hate Miranda. <laughs> because the show has always hated Miranda and you can't hate Miranda in 2021 by painting her as a humorless feminist because everyone's like, I'm a humorless fe- feminist. So how do you hate a character like Miranda in 2021? You make her a bumbling, racist fool. A white saviour. A white saviour who exemplifies all of the things that we've, you know, that we have come to associate with um, the trope of the Karen, mm-hmm. present company excluded, <laughs> who, I mean, there is no conceivable universe in which Miranda would be less versed in these things than Charlotte. And yeah, yet Charlotte is, is yeah. presented as having a very close black friend. This is what I'm saying is that it doesn't make sense that Miranda becomes the scapegoat for all of that for all of those colossal errors that they made along the way. And the idea that Carrie somehow <laughs> is now on this, you know, really kind of edgy, inverted commas, woke podcast about, you know, um, men, women and gender non-binary people. In what universe having, would Carrie be chosen for that? open conversations about sex. It's like, it's a nonsense. But it's it's... It's in keeping with my theory that Sex and the City is ne- is no longer a show rooted in reality. It's like a kind of fantasia, or 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 a you know speculative fantasy about what your life would be like. W- women, they think that women want to watch it, and they're partly correct because you can imagine what your life would be like if you just had unlimited money you magically got jobs and opportunities that you were in no way Mm. (laughs) um, talented enough to have and you got everything you ever wanted. Mm. You got your giant shoe closet in Manhattan and you got your boyfriend who was an unattainable creep and you got your 16,000 pairs of Manolos and you got your whatever. Mm. And there's this kind of wish fulfilment in it that I think it's in a way the same but as look watching. what Miranda the, the feminist yeah. ended up with <laughs> bloody Steve Steve and a, and a horrible son and a horrible son and you know no, certainly not a shoe closet no but hopefully soon a queer awakening <laughs> <laughs> I mean I am really curious about and look obviously it goes without saying that I will watch yeah, every absolutely. single episode that is aired 
and dissect it in minute detail. <laughs> but I, I do find it really interesting that um, it's, it's curious to watch it while thinking about all of these aspects of age and and how women age and what uh, like what sort of status we occupy in the world when Carrie Bradshaw as Carrie Bradshaw on the TV shows was always kind of cutesy. I mean Sarah Jessica Parker is tiny. She's like a dancer, so she moves like a dancer. She is very flirtatious. She would be extremely charming to be around. But that charm only takes people so far in a an ageist world and b a world in which it sort of isn't cute anymore to be behaving as if you're a little flippity gibbet but i sort of feel like that's now the only subversive thing left about her <laughs> but, she, I don't, but i don't think that, that she's a woman in her mid 50s who, who retains this kind of i think they've moved her away from that mm, okay and one of the one of the things one of the kind of like little moments that i thought helped to move her away from that and I thought it was an interesting stylistic choice on, on behalf of the writers that they were sort of signaling, signaling to the audience, we know you hate that kind of woman now and so we need you to love Carrie. Carrie's not that kind of woman anymore. Is when she comes home at the, the start of the first episode and Big is there and they're in their beautiful kitchen and she says she makes some mention about the salmon, cooking the salmon, and he says to her, I remember when you used to keep your sweaters in the stove. And she says something like, well, we all move on or we all grow up or whatever. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because Carrie Bradshaw probably would never learn to cook, like that Carrie Bradshaw. But in servicing the fans, as you said earlier, they need to say to them, Carrie's not so flighty and ridiculous and twee that she, this incredibly wealthy woman, is still like storing her sweaters in the stove. Like she knows how to cook now. She's she's achieved a level of class and a level of um, self awareness. Or, or he's or they put it in there to remind us where Carrie came from, and to kind of humanize her and to make her ascent to now the one percent more palatable to the viewer who can remember when. You know, she lived in the kitchen with rats running around. You yeah. know, um, I mean, inexplicably, <laughs> given what we could glean from the typing on screen, inexplicably, the columns that seem to be of very low quality <laughs> have catapulted her <laughs> to international stardom. But also, she married well. Yeah, I mean, that was always the she she was writing in a time when she probably would have been getting a sort of fairly decent word count rate but it wouldn't have been any more than a dollar a word and she must what she was writing 800 word columns a week 800 dollars a week in new york's not going to take you it's not going to take you to the chanel store baby kid as big big likes to call it okay let's talk about samantha how they did her wrong what can we say i mean I just feel like Samantha would would not be so petty as to cut her three best friends out over a business deal. Well, exactly. A business deal that, I mean, real Samantha, canon Samantha, (laughs) canonic Samantha would say, oh, no worries, Carrie, that that frees me up to, you know, take this class or that frees me up to, to go and work with this exciting new client. Yeah. It just and you're small bickies to me because I handle these huge accounts. Yeah, like Carrie Bradshaw's <laughs> not Samantha Jones's <laughs> biggest PR account. Please and thank you. 
I feel like maybe if Samantha did, you know, get angry about it, it I don't I don't feel as though it's true to her character for her to have escalated it into a full-blown war spanning years. But we know that it's not about Samantha. It's about Kim Cattrall. Mm. <laughs> and so the writers have, have really made it clear that their allegiance obviously is with Sarah Jessica Parker in The Great Feud. But there was a little bit of gaslighting that happened with that because Kim Cattrall's, since she's been speaking out about her experience, she's been pretty clear that she felt like it was a toxic, for her, Mm. like she felt it was a toxic environment. She obviously doesn't get along with Sarah Jessica Parker and she thinks that Sarah Jessica Parker is fake. Whether or not Mm. any of that is true, that's how she feels. And, you know... Maybe maybe it is realistic that Sarah Jessica Parker would be like, well, I'm the fucking EP of this show and I'm going to have the final word on you, Kim Cattrall. But I felt, again, that sort of like sliver of discomfort at seeing Sarah Jessica Parker as cutesy Carrie being like, I just don't know what I did wrong. Like, we were always just friends. Like, did she really just always see me as a payday? <laughs> saying of Samantha Jones but really saying of Kim Cattrall. And it's like, yes, Sarah Jessica Parker, it was a job. Yeah, and you know that the the dispute between them was about Kim Cattrall feeling as though a few seasons in, it wasn't appropriate anymore f- for Sarah Jessica Parker to be the highest paid actor on the mm. show, that actually she had become so popular that it was reasonable to have a renegotiation and that it shouldn't be Sarah Jessica Parker gets this pay and the other three get this much lower pay, mm. which seems reasonable. And then you wonder if maybe the the um, the bad blood between them came from Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall having, you know, conversations about it in which Sarah Jessica was, like, encouraging of her or and then maybe behind her back making sure that she didn't get the pay rise, whatever. But it seems logical that Sarah Jessica Parker would be paid more from the beginning because she was a big star. Like, at the beginning of Sex and the City, it's hard for us mm. to remember – she was a big movie star. Yeah. And people in movies didn't do... And she's do, a great... She's a great... Didn't do TV. Comedic you know? actress too. Yeah. And so for her to... It was a bigger risk for her than the other three actors to take mm. it on. But I think Samantha's right that she, as evidenced by how flat this new show is, Samantha's character ends up becoming like mm. the fucking beating heart of the show. And when you rip the beating heart out, you've got a pretty lifeless corpse. Yeah, it's like April Ellen Horton, a.k.a. the Bodzilla, tweeted, forget Emily in Paris, I want to see Samantha in London. <laughs> Which is so great. Of course you want to see that. Although there was a little underhanded comment there as well when the characters were talking about it where they said something like, well, I, even in, I suppose in London – it's still sexy to be in your mid-60s or something like that. Or maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Yeah, I just, right. I feel like, had a dig. I feel like I strongly recall hearing something like that. And, yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But I want to mention Greta Parry, who's someone that I follow on Instagram, an amazing film critic, and um, she does great deep dives on TV shows and films on Instagram, Greta Parry, P-A-R-R-Y. She did a really great review of the first couple of episodes of And Just Like That. And I loved her prediction, which was that the first two episodes necessarily had to just deal with the Samantha issue Mm. somehow. And that the death of, spoiler alert, big. (laughs) Um, To be honest, if you don't know that by now, (laughs) then we got nothing for you. Does a great job of distracting from that. But also, as she points out, freeing Carrie up. To fuck. 
for well to ex- for the show to explore as it once did yeah a subversive series of encounters in which a genuine you know a middle-aged woman um finds her sexual connections again finds her either finds a a partner or experiments or whatever it sort of frees up Carrie to be go back to the original where it Mm. all started which was Carrie figuring out what do I want why men so shit um why is everyone seemingly having a better sex life than me like the Mm. kind of original things that drove the story so I thought that was very optimistic of Greta and such an exciting idea that if they're going to um, follow these women in their 50s, at least, you know, don't just show us, like, the interiors of fucking posh apartments, mm. you know, because we'll all fall asleep with boredom. Mm. And also I think that that is a really encouraging and probably true theory too. I know that one of the writers on And Just Like That is Samantha Irby, who was a writer on Shrill, Lindy West's Shrill, She's also – she, she wrote the collection of essays, the memoir collection of essays, Bitches Gotta Eat. She's also just in the middle of producing her own show, like writing and producing her own show with Abby from Broad City. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so she's like – and she's posted on Instagram about how exciting it was to write a, a, a subversive show about women in their mid-50s having sex. So I feel like we've been promised some sex is going to happen. And maybe some of that sex is going to be between Miranda and Shady Az. I'm pretty sure that you could lay some good money on that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. It is interesting to visit. I The last thing I just want to say is that it's it's interesting from a pop culture perspective to this this phenomenon of rebooting series and revisiting older characters, older beloved characters mm. – with the same cast of characters is really pretty relatively recent. And it is actually quite jarring to see the cast that lives on so strongly in your mind. And having, that you rewatch all the time. And that you rewatch all the yeah. time. Having grown and aged. And there's something quite um, confronting is the wrong word, but there's something refreshing about that, but also a little jarring because we're just so not used to seeing that. I mean, we're barely used to seeing women age on screen. Yeah. And but, I think it's part of a, a trend that's actually really excellent that yeah. is that we're starting to see more and more women in roles that are age appropriate to them rather than 30 38 year olds getting cast as grandmas um and we're starting to see more well-rounded female characters of all different ages mm. um on tv and in film and yeah and just like that is you know obviously benefiting from that kind of opening up i guess I will say, though, that I am still absolutely confused and gobsmacked at what the point of Charlotte is. <laughs> I just don't understand the purpose of her character. My prediction is that her child is going to maybe come out as an non-binary mm-hmm. and that that's going to be a, a real-world 21st century challenge for Charlotte, who lives in the unreal world of mm. another century and time. <laughs> but I think that was presaged pretty yeah, in yeah. a pretty heavy-handed way yeah. with the refusal to wear a dress. So we'll see. We'll see how um, an old dog learns some new tricks. Not Charlotte, I mean the show. <laughs> yeah. 
And just like that, we discussed <laughs> the Sex and the City reboot. All right, we've come we've come to the roundup. End of 2021. It's been a fucking hellfire of a year, <laughs> but so was 2020, so we're used to it now. But some great things did happen. So let's do our best of lists. Okay. Let's start with albums. Did you have a, a favourite album this year? Well, my favourite album of the year was, I think, the same as yours, which is Taylor Swift's Red, sort of as an overarching kind of favourite. <laughs> but actually, actually, my favourite album, the, the one that really struck me that I wasn't expecting, um, was an album called Dawn by a musician called Yeba, who was kind of set – I don't know much about her story, but all I know is that she was set to – she performed with someone um, like pretty prominent and was set to kind of like explode on the scene. And then she suffered a personal tragedy and this album – I won't give too much away, you know, but this album is a an exploration of that personal tragedy and it's just so fucking beautiful. So that's my album of the year. Okay. Well, yes, Red Taylor's version is Definitely. I feel like we can take that as red. Yeah. <laughs> According to my Spotify rap, definitely my album of the year. But I did want to give special mention to Montero, Lil Nas X. Following on from our conversation about being middle-aged and not afraid of it and actually loving it, I feel like the joy and excitement and delight that I get in watching an artist like Lil Nas X is very much as a mum. Mm. Like it's very much like – how beautiful that this young man has unapologetically shown the world exactly who he is and the world fucking loves it. Mm. And he's pushing so many boundaries, so many barriers. He just, just like knocks them over, bang, bang, bang. He doesn't give a shit. He's so – I mean, presumably he has, you know, his own fears and worries and anxieties that, that – um, that don't really like come through in his music, but he just has this incredible confidence and clarity and sense of humor and joy in his sort of like unapologetic celebration of fucking men. Mm. And I fucking love it. I feel like what a great example to kids. I am defying the middle aged, um, stereotype here by I'm not alarmed or concerned about kids listening to Lil Nas X or seeing video clips where well, he's that's because you're not a fuckhead yeah where he's uh giving a lap dance to the devil <laughs> like yes yeah, good for him <laughs> good for him and, and it's a kind of um the same kind of joy I feel about Harry Styles who mm. you know um I love the idea that men are changing and that young men have got different and better role models to look up to. And mm. so, yeah, plus it slaps. Mm. Yeah. Montero was was my – in my Spotify wrapped, it was my second most listened album of the year. And, um, yeah. So on that note, let's talk about TV as well because definitely one of my best of TV shows this year was Ted Lasso. And I'm mentioning that because of what you say about young men being given yes. this different model of how to be – Ted Lasso is a show you may have come across it on Apple TV or like wherever, whatever you stream on. I don't know. I watched it there. Um, it's on the surface. You might be like, oh, God, I don't want to watch a comedy As I about was, a fucking yeah. English sport. football team. Sport. <laughs> blah. Mainly because we know what that kind of thing 
always is, which is just dude heavy comedy that isn't like full of heart or really kind of like exploring the multitudes of human feelings and emotions and lives. But that's what Ted Lasso very quickly becomes. And Jason Sudeikis plays the titular character. He has come to England. He's been recruited to coach a football team in England. And he's just, he's initially, you're like, oh, they're just going to kind of make out this sort of bumbling, dense guy as a bit sort of hapless and doesn't really know what's going on in the world. But actually, he's incredibly kind, incredibly joyful and very sensitive and very switched on to human emotions and to his own his own kind of like emotional state really. Ooh. He's like a beautiful example of what masculinity can look like and he, and he models that to his team too. Yeah, and builds those relationships with the other men around him in that kind of same image. And I feel like my reaction to Ted Lasso when I first watched it was really um, complicated by the fact that I – I was ready to hate it. I wanted mm. – I, I watched it and I thought, is the whole joke here just that he's really nice? Like is that yeah. – is it – is it, are men And so, everyone else is so yeah. mean. Are men so shit that they've built a show around the hilarious conceit that one of them would be really kind and lovely? But then I quickly realised that the show has actually set that up within it and mm. that you're – you feeling like that – is how everyone else in the show is feeling. All the other characters are like, is this guy for real? Like when he's so relentlessly cheerful and encouraging, should we be suspicious of that? Mm. And then you kind of see that as their walls break down, yours do too, and you fall in love with Ted Lasso. And and then you kind of see everyone else, I guess, becoming a better self through him. It sounds so schmaltzy. But it, but it, but just, it really fucking works. And because it has that British sensibility, mm. I think if it had been done in America – it would have been schmaltzy, mm-hmm. but I think because it has that kind of sort of stiff upper lip British sensibility to it, I think that it tempers that nicely. And the show, like despite the fact that it's a comedy, it really explores men's mental health. Yeah. Um, the power of sexuality. having sexuality, the power of having a good father versus having a bad father um, or even just a complicated father. And the, the, redemptive potential of male friendship yeah which is so often even in um shows that might overall have a positive um outcome like a friday night lights or something mm. where the, the friendships between the men actually do become really quite pure those shows still really hinge on toxic masculinity being this kind of engine mm. underneath and in ted lasso it's just like toxic masculinity just it's not that it doesn't exist, it exists in really pointed ways, but in the club that he builds and the relationships that he makes, they just keep showing over and over again that if you are honest and open and vulnerable mm. with your friends, your male friends, then your friendship will deepen mm. and your trust will deepen and your enjoyment of life and feelings of safety and feelings of belonging will deepen. And, and your community, which in this case is your team. Yeah, will benefit. Will benefit and yeah. be stronger. Yeah, And, and it doesn't matter if you win or lose because they're not like – it's not really like a, you know, underdog story. I mean, it sort of is, but it's not really about that. No, it ends up becoming – that becomes the side story almost is, yeah. is how well they do on the pitch. And then the real story is 
how are they growing and becoming better men? And it sounds, I feel like I'm going to no. cry just thinking about it. All we'll say is if you haven't watched Ted Lasso and you're looking for a good summer watch, you know, perhaps Boxing Day this year, load it up, push through, through yes. the first episode because I feel like, and that was the same with Shit's Creek, every mm-hmm. show that um, demonstrates itself to have an enormous amount of heart is sometimes in the beginning you're a bit you've got to get, get to know the characters and, and it can be tricky. The other one I'll just quickly mention, burn. yeah, yeah. The other one I'll just quickly mention. It's only up to episode five, so you can get on board <laughs> right from the beginning, and it's a completely different kind of kettle of fish. It's sort of part supernatural, part thriller, part um, kind of flashback time. It's not time travel, but it's told in two timelines, and it's very women heavy and women focused and driven and that's yellow jackets with Juliette Lewis and Melanie Linsky and it's just, I don't want to, I'm not going to give anything away but it's brilliant my my best of the year was Mayor of East Town um seems impossible that that was this year but um and you and I watched that together in different mm. homes because we were all locked down but we would queue it up and watch it together and then send furious messages the whole time going oh my fucking god um so people who haven't seen that if you like me and you love a really dark gritty complex mystery but you would really appreciate one that in which the female characters drive the whole story mm. and in which and are written by people who have seemingly met women yeah and in which the male characters are there really to serve the women's um, development, mm. um, but also in which the, the female victims, not, not a spoiler to say, um, are more completely and humanely uh, understood throughout the show. If you're like me and you love murder shows, <laughs> it's an amazing one. Um, and the other show that my... my I won't say guilty pleasure, but my out-and-out pleasure was Outer Banks. I just loved – it was just an absolute thrill ride of teenage nonsense. It's like the OC meets the Goonies and if that sounds like your cup of tea, you're going to be in for a treat. So those are your TV shows to watch. Best book? My best book this year was How We Love. Oh, stop! By Clementine Ford. Oh, I, I debated whether or not to say that because it's the truth. Um, and you know, to take a tiny bit of gloss off that, I didn't read that many books this year. Mm-hmm. It must be said, but I, I did read yours, and I was lucky enough to read it. Um, but of the one book you read, <laughs> it was definitely it was my favorite. It was definitely the best. No, I did. I read a handful, and um, many of the others were, you know, more more worky. Ones and this was one that I was really happy to um, to dive into. And this will sound funny, but I I was surprised that you know some of the stories even I'd heard before or feeling like I spent get to spend lots of time with you. I I, I felt like it would be a really you know beautiful, comforting, sweet read. But I did what I didn't expect was that it would be so incredibly moving and so deeply. Um, and sort of profoundly life-affirming to me because I expected it to be more familiar. But actually I think people, if even I who knows you so well could read it and learn so much about you and really feel like you got to a, 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 
a more vulnerable part of yourself in this book, then imagine how everyone else is mm. going to find it. And I feel like um, it will be a great, a great um, gift for you to share at Christmas time. Oh, thanks, Bestie. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that. That's that's incredibly lovely and generous of you to say. Um, and with all, with absolutely all sincerity, that was not staged. <laughs> um, no, because if I told you I was going to say that, you would have told me not to. <laughs> so I made sure that I just, kept, I just thought I'll see what I what I want to say when it happens. But there yeah, you go. that was it. I haven't read an enormous amount of books this year either because it's really hard finding time to read books when you're a single mum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard finding times to read time to read books anyway, but that especially seems to throw a spanner in the works. But I will give another shout out to um, my friend Aja Baba, who wrote a brilliant book called Consumed, which is nonfiction. It's very challenging to read. Um, it's very confronting and it's about the fast fashion industry. Oh. <laughs> no. It is about the fast fashion industry, not only the fast fashion industry's impact on the climate and the environment, which, spoiler, is devastating and terrifying, but also the fast fashion industry's impact on human rights and the people who make our clothes, basically. So it is a confronting read, but I really recommend that everyone read it. And maybe just think about making 2022 your year to consume a lot less. That's something I'm going to challenge myself to do. It's something I've tried to do on and off this year. I've fallen off the wagon a couple of times, but I really look around my apartment and it's so hard when you're in lockdown because one of the only things that can bring you joy, which is so fucked, it's such a fucked reflection on our society, is ordering shit on the internet. And I really want to stop doing that next year. I want to stop ordering stuff and start, if I if I do spend money, start you know using it on experiences that I'll remember or that will like... Um, feed my soul in some way. I know that sounds really kind well, of instead cheesy. Of, but instead of acquiring stuff, you're going to do stuff. Yeah. The other book that I want to mention, which I haven't read yet, but it literally just arrived while we were recording this, is a book called These Impossible Things by the absolutely brilliant Salma El-Wadani, who is, uh, you know, she lives in London. She's an incredible thinker, activist, um, you know, challenges everyone's ideas on on womanhood and on misogyny and patriarchy and you just cannot listen to Salma without walking away and feeling like your entire fucking being has been set on fire (laughs) and you are grateful for it you know she is I once joked to her that um the idea of like a feminist church would be a good a good idea and I just want this woman to deliver sermons to me she'd be the preacher Day in and day out. And this is a fiction – it's a fiction debut novel and it's about um, – I'll read the back. It's about the story of three women of reconciling love, loss, faith, womanhood and friendship. It's about finding home, finding what matters and finding yourself because that's not impossible, or is it? Um, but it's really about three women and about friendship and I'm really excited to read it. Salma, I fucking love you. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we close out with a, a pop culture moment? Um, mm. Anything – springs to mind immediately that made this year feel as though it wasn't a total dumpster fire? Ooh, there were so many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's hard to look through the flames of the dumpster fire (laughs) year and find the glittering diamonds. One of my um, 
things, one of the things that has stuck in my head all year, um, even though it wasn't necessarily a highlight, but I think it was powerful, was, was Harry and Meghan talking to Oprah. Um, because it seems like, you know, at, at one, one way of looking at it is that it's just, you know, two impossibly rich and powerful people um, talking about how hard their life is to another impossibly rich and powerful person. But I do think um, that what they said and what they revealed and and what they refused to keep secret anymore I think was a pretty powerful example of, irrespective of their positions and mm. their privilege, of people saying enough, people saying this is not right, this is not okay, I'm not going to be stuck in these systems just because I was born into them or I married into them. I feel like for lots of people, I mean, I don't know exactly who I think that example was set for, but I just have thought about it a lot and I thought about how, I know this is extremely naff, but, um, and also showing, showing my age in that I grew up worshipping Princess Diana, um, I feel like she would have been really proud of her son. Mm. Um, and again, that's the, that's the mum lens Same, that yeah. I watched it with. I just thought, well, Meghan Markle, she's a mum. She's, she and her partner have taken this pretty drastic stand in order to protect their children after it was clear that their children were not going to be safe mm. in that context. Not going to be safe around the family of one of the parents. You know, mm. which probably lots of people can relate to in some way. But I just felt like, yeah, his mum, who he lost when he was so young, um, he was like, I'm not going to let that happen to my wife. And I felt like Princess Diana would have been very proud of him being so strong and so brave. Um, and I know that it's not popular to, um, you know, feel sorry for him because he's a royal but I I feel like he's he's menschy and he's like he and his his wife are walking the talk at least mm. uh, I agree with all of that I actually am struggling to think about what happened in the first half of the year and I'm not saying that even to be funny I just feel like it's kind of <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read Twilight mm. the series oh my god one of the worst things ever written but so like compellingly I remember when I first read it in 2009 or something, I slammed all four books and I'd started reading the first one and was like, this is ridiculous and put it down. And then my friend basically gave me a pressy of all four books. And I was like, well, I have to read that now. <laughs> I think the thing that convinced me was her telling me about Jacob imprinting on the baby. And I was like, I've got to read this book. And so I read them all when I was go I was overseas and I, I, I was kind of like jet lagged and so I would just stay up until 4am just like slamming these fucking terrible, atrocious candy cane of books. Um, but there's a scene in the in the second one, I think, when Ed, for anyone who's familiar with Twilight, <laughs> Edward the Glittery Vampire decides to leave her for her own good. And she just spends the next few months, like in the, in the movies it's depicted as her just looking depressed. Um, but in the book it's like, there's like five chapters where it's just October blank page, November blank page, <laughs> December so blank dramatic. page. And that's kind of like what the first half of the year feels like to me, like October blank page, you know. Um, so I've, I can only really like think back the last – I tell you what, it's not so much moments, but it is it's sort of like a series of moments. And one of the things that has brought me an immense amount of joy this year – is watching Jonathan Van Ness 
revisit gymnastics and mm. and you know they'll post on their page quite often like their progress and they've gone from you know um I think that they used to have a background in acrobatics but they've gone from so they were cheerleader yeah right mm. okay so they've gone from the sort of trying to relearn it to you know at the very basic level to doing flips <laughs> and somersault and backflips and just the joy with which they live their life mm. and the absolute absence of shame and self-consciousness and um, any kind of concern that other people will think that they're not cool or whatever. Like you just cannot help but love them and, and nor would you want to help but love them. Like they bring you so much. I feel like when I watch their things, I'm just like – you are one of the purest fucking humans alive. You're a beacon. Yeah, you you are doing such incredible necessary work and it sort of shows that you don't necessarily have to have – like your output doesn't necessarily have to be serious and political at all times, although of course like everything is mm-hmm. political, but that we can actually do our small part in the world by also living in a way that tells other people that it's okay – to be vulnerable and it's okay to find joy. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. I think that they're, as you say, their example of someone who, of being someone who doesn't let the possible judgment of others stop them from just seeking pleasure and joy and happiness is probably a really hard one mm. for them. You know, like they're, they're a queer, non-binary person who's HIV positive. They've got a lot of, serious structural challenges in the world and yet they just fucking show up with such a joie de vie and a total you know openness and as you say vulnerability to everyone they meet and there's there's this kind of sincerity or authenticity at work Mm. there which you just can't fake Mm. the other big pop cultural moment um this year was of course britney oh my god of course which Britney freed. Yes, which obviously like opened up a huge conversation in the public sphere about how this had happened and you know what gets wh- what is done to young women when they become famous and how many other people live under conservatorships and you know um the role of toxic family and um in getting people into situations that they can't get out of. And mm. so I think it was probably you know it was such a vindication as well of this small group of fans who for years have been talking mm. about the conservatorship and the the um, imprisonment, essentially, mm. of Britney Spears. And they were just laughed at. They were just seen as, like, just women and gay mm. men who were just crazed fans who mm. no one should listen to. And because Britney was always a joke. And yeah. it's, there's something really interesting and synchronistic about looking at looking back at the original Sex and the City show mm. versus and just like that and knowing that at the time Sex and the City's first, certainly their first seasons, if not all of their seasons, were being made, women like Britney Spears and Anna Nicole Smith and any woman who lived her life and it's all like supremely classist as well Mm. but they were all it was totally fine to make them the butt of the joke Mm. and I remember those scenes of Britney Tara Reid yeah Britney Murphy all of them Amy Winehouse yeah but you would never and and nor should you Mm. you would never get away with 
publicly, which isn't to say that women, that people still don't pillory women, mm. but you wouldn't get away with making that uh, like a, a punchline on a late night show or a punchline in a comedy series. It's not open season anymore. Well, people would just be like, this is really tasteless. Mm. And I feel quite assured. So there's this um, podcast that I listen to called You Are Good, which is a film podcast. I love it. I love the hosts, Alex and Sarah, so much. It's just, it's another one of the things that brings me an immense amount of joy. And they did an episode on Dazed and Confused this year, which is, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a movie that was made in the 90s by Richard Linklater, it's set in the 70s, and so it's a very nostalgic film. Now, you can't make a movie in the 1970s about the 1970s and have it be nostalgic. People will draw nostalgia from it later, but that's distinct from making a nostalgic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex said, we, you know, we live in a time and then we have to move enough, far enough beyond that time to really be able to understand what that time was about. And I think talking about, you know, we we mentioned earlier at the start of the episode that we have lived one full adult life between being 20 and being 40 now. And so that seems to be this period of time that needs to pass at least 20 years for you to have enough sufficient distance from a moment in time to be able to look back at it clearly and see what it was all about. And so there's something in being in 2021 and looking back at the early 2000s and seeing not only how women were treated in that time and, and the changing mores of, of what is, you know, considered aspirational womanhood, but also be reassured by how fucking far we've come. Like, mm-hmm. we ha- still have a long way to go, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, but a lot has changed in the last 20 years and we, ha- we should be incredibly encouraged by that. And we've done it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as feminists, we've been part of that change making. Everyone and has so, been in, the, in ways big and small. Absolutely. So I feel like it it doesn't um, it doesn't do always to to look at how bad everything is. You're right. We do have to kind of think about how much we've accomplished and how far we've come. Because I feel like if we if we do get bogged down in how awful things are then that takes away our energy to keep working and keep trying and sometimes I feel like what gives me the energy and the courage and the give a fuck to keep going is looking at how hard everyone has worked in the past to get us where we are now Mm. and that is a wonderful note to end on Karen Pickering I love you so much I'm so grateful for your friendship And I'm so glad that we are going into 2022 uh, with each other. I love you too. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.